Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're calling this week's show the G word. What is the G word? Well, here's a hint. For me, gentrification is a negative thing. You know, everybody moving in, they, they build me all these apartment buildings, the poor black folks. We can't afford that. In my opinion, I think it's a good thing. We just have to set ourselves up to take advantage of the opportunities that are given. As you may have guessed from the voices of our Washingtonians here, gentrification is the name of our game today. And you can see signs of it across D.C., from escalating home costs to rising construction cranes to increasingly long lines outside trendy restaurants. Are they symbols of progress? Hints of impending displacement? Does gentrification even have to have winners and losers? Does it always mean black versus white or young versus old? Over the next hour, we'll untangle some of those questions as we visit neighborhoods in the midst of gentrification and on the cusp. We'll start in an area that gentrified years ago, before, in fact, that term was in popular use. Jacob Fenston has the story. The apartment building where Vernon Ricks grew up has long since been painted over, the brick covered with fresh layers of white paint. This is the apartment that I was born in. Apartment number four. Up on the top corner there? On the top corner. That was the living room. Like many neighborhoods in D.C., this one was once mostly African-American. Rick says it was like a village. Everyone knew everyone. If you got in trouble on a Sunday morning at church... Before I got home, everybody knew it include my mother, and we did not have texting. Ricks was born in 1939. Back then, these were run-down working-class apartments. Now they're condos, one-bedrooms selling for more than half a million dollars. This is, after all, Georgetown. We're at the corner of 26th and O Streets Northwest, just above Rock Creek, and as we're talking, a younger man stops. What, what, are, you, what are you all doing? I was born in this building. Oh, wow. I, I live, I live uh, in the complex. Hubble Knapp moved into the building about a decade ago. When did uh, your family move out of uh, Beale uh, I Court? I think it was around 48 or 49. This is from 1944, and it goes on to say just two very quick quotes. Historian C.R. Gibbs, co-author of Black Georgetown Remembered, is reading from a Senate committee investigation that found by the 1940s Most black families had moved out of the area. In Georgetown, only remnants of a long-established Negro population now remain because so much of their property has been purchased and improved for white occupancy. That long-established population dated back to the very beginnings of the town in 1745. From the time that George Gordon establishes a tobacco inspection station at the foot of what is now Wisconsin Avenue. By the end of the 1800s, About one-third of Georgetown residents were black. Many lived in the area where Vernon Ricks was born. It was called Herring Hill. About 900 families, uh, primarily African-American. By the 1920s and 30s, newcomers started moving into the neighborhood. They were flooding into the city to work for the booming federal government. Georgetown's poorer residents moved out, pushed in part by market forces in part by legislation aimed at cleaning up slums. This is like a tsunami that picks up steam, and I'm referring to gentrification, so that as the success was proven here, as was made to happen here, and black folk moved to other parts of the city, many would have to move a second time to avoid the gentrification in their neighborhood. My family is a perfect example of that. Sabia Prince is an anthropologist and author of the book African Americans and Gentrification in Washington, D.C. My grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a sharecropper. He came here at the age of 17 from South Carolina. 
He moved in with his family members in Georgetown. And eventually moved to the Trinidad neighborhood of Northeast D.C. They were able to buy a house as many white families fled to the suburbs. And then we see a Trinidad is another area right now that is being gentrified. The word gentrification wasn't coined until decades after Georgetown underwent the changes that, looking back, we now call gentrification. The word comes from a British sociologist who came up with it in 1964, describing a changing London, where it had nothing to do with race. In the United States and in D.C., Prince says it's about class and race. You have to put gentrification within the context of U.S. history. And when you do that, that's when you begin to see these racialized patterns because... At its foundation, gentrification is about inequality. In the nation's capital, gentrification has taken a different course than in other cities. D.C. has had a post-industrial economy for its entire history. Derek Musgrove is a history professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He's identified four historical waves of gentrification in D.C., each lining up with expansion of the federal government. In the 1970s and 80s, there was a burst of development and displacement in what had become very poor inner-city neighborhoods, places like Adams Morgan and Columbia Heights. And renters, by the year 1978, just revolted. They burned bonfires in the streets. They stopped paying their rent. And they appealed to the city council to do something about it. And council members, many of them former activists, responded with some of the most impressive legislation for protecting renters and poor people and allowing them to stay in their homes in a hot real estate market in the country. But by the time the legislation went into effect, the city didn't need to enforce it. When the crack epidemic hit the district in the mid-1980s, the crime rate skyrocketed. So nobody's moving into these neighborhoods. You don't need to worry about an anti-flipping tax, for instance. And so they let it all lapse. By the late 90s, those same neighborhoods were again becoming hot real estate markets. And the city does not revisit that legislation. This is where policymakers drop the ball. This is where policymakers did not learn from the lessons of the past. And in a changing city, not many people remember that past. Let me make it clear that I understand progress. Vernon Ricks, who moved out of the neighborhood more than 60 years ago and now lives in Montgomery County, still comes back each Sunday for church. Many of the old houses and buildings are the same, but Georgetown doesn't feel like home. It kind of hurts you to, to look and see that our people cannot afford to really be Washingtonians in all parts of Washington. I'm Jacob Fenston. So as we just heard, D.C. is no stranger to transformation. But in the 1970s, after Congress gave city residents the right to elect their own mayor and city council, a local newspaper columnist wrote about something she believed would transform the city in a very particular and sinister way. She called it the plan. The specific term, the plan, was articulated for the first time by Lillian Wiggins, who was a columnist for the Washington Afro-American. And, says history professor Derek Musgrove, her basic belief was this. That whites in D.C. had a plan to come back and take over the city, both its real estate, so its physical space, and its politics. Wiggins pronounced this conspiracy in 1979. At that time, in the aftermath of the 68 riots... The city was roughly 70% black. Its first two mayors, Walter E. Washington and Marion Barry, were black. 
And it was pretty much guaranteed that the next mayor was going to be black as well. So, says Musgrove. At first blush, you would think, well, what in the world would cause someone to say this? Which is why he suggests looking more deeply at the context in which Wiggins was writing. I think there were a number of things that caused people to look at the plan as a viable explanation for what was happening around them. A big thing, he says, was... Our lack of statehood and Congress's ability to meddle in the city's affairs. Because even though D.C. achieved home rule in 1974, its lack of full voting representation and budget autonomy led to some serious insecurity. Add to that the notoriety surrounding Marion Barry's first administration, racked as it was with ethics scandals, rising crime, and unemployment. Many residents believe that the Marion Barry era may be the last time Washington will have a black mayor. This is an excerpt from Wiggins' column in the Washington Informer in 1979. If negative programming and characterization of black leadership are allowed to continue in the city of Washington, and especially the black community, there is a strong possibility of the master plan, which I have so often spoken about maturing in the 1980s. And here are Wiggins' words 13 years later in 1992. Though most African Americans in this town were disbelievers, there's no doubt that my predictions have come to full bloom. These days, if you head out to a neighborhood like, say, Shaw, and ask D.C. residents about the plan, you'll be hard-pressed to find someone who remembers Wiggins' column, but many people still know the basics of her idea. I didn't hear it as named the plan, but I heard that there was a plan for D.C. to become gentrified, which means that Caucasians will come in. Well, the plan may get rid of all the poor black people and replace them with rich white people. I don't know how true it is, but I did, I did hear about that. And I see what's going on today. It's like the plan was true. But if you ask Harry Jaffe, co-author of Dream City, Race, Power, and the Decline of Washington, D.C., whether the plan was true, he says you're asking a faulty question. If you consider what a plan is... It presupposes people getting together and actually articulating a plan and then carrying it out. So in this case, you'd be talking about some shadowy cabal huddling in some cigar smoke-filled back room and plotting. Let's get rid of the black people, which is what a plan is, okay? Here's how we're going to do it. You know, we're going to tear down the public housing. We're going to shove them across the Prince George's County line. And pretty soon, there's going to be less than 50 percent blacks, and we'll take back the city. That's not what happened. What did happen, Jaffe says, are natural market forces and a little something called gentrification, which he defines as a market-driven change in a neighborhood where housing stock that may not be in great shape, may not be of great value, becomes a place where newcomers to the city want to, you know, settle down. But even if there was no plan, clearly something about this idea still held appeal. Here's another excerpt from Lillian Wiggins' column, this one from November 1985. An October 6th edition of the Washington Post asked the question, does the white return to D.C. mean the plan is coming true? They started out by saying, quote, almost as soon as blacks won real political power in the District of Columbia a decade ago, some began to worry that whites who had fled the city for the suburbs eventually would return to reclaim control. After all, Washington was a city that straddled North and South, a place where blacks held prominence in a way you didn't see in many other American cities. But as Derek Musgrove emphasizes, underneath it all were those two persisting issues. Gentrification and self-determination. And faced with an abundance of the one and an absence of the other, it's understandable if fear and paranoia began to set in. 
But again, he says that doesn't mean there was an actual plan, even if, in a way, you might say it's actually come true. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the city has gentrified. Today, the city is no longer has its black majority. And then, of course, you know, the city has changed politically as well. The number of black elected officials has shrunk. Those are things that have happened. And large numbers of black residents have felt unnerved by them, independent of their belief in the plan. And that, he says, suggests we still have a lot of work to do here in the nation's capital as we strive to make our city more accessible and livable for all. Want to see how the city's demographics have shifted? We have census data on D.C.'s racial and ethnic background dating back to 1800 on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, pop-ups and pop-outs. It just feels like someone's invading your turf. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where today we are all about the G word. Gentrification is a natural demographic and commercial change in a city. My view of gentrification, it would be the forced move of a large group of persons. Gentrification is when the people who are living in their own city don't have enough to pay for the housing in their own city because of new people coming in. Those were some Washingtonians sharing their views on, you guessed it, gentrification. And that last comment we heard about new people driving up the cost of housing? Well, some say the answer to that problem is simple. Build more housing. But as Martin Ostermule tells us, in some parts of the city, that solution comes with its share of controversy. They finally moved the dirt out. They had dirt all seeped up along there. They finally moved it out. Sandra Lassane and I are standing behind her two-story row house on Buchanan Street Northwest. It's a modest home, like many on this quiet block in the 16th Street Heights neighborhood. She's showing me the house next to hers. It's little more than a facade with a construction site behind it, but the foundations of the new building are taking shape. They're going to put, I guess, a a building from here all the way to that end and and a parking pad at the end of the yard. It's going to be the height of your house. Yes, it's going to be higher than my house. But it's going to extend all the way back. Well, well to, uh, yes, to, not quite all the way back. Not all the way back, but further than Yeah, oh, further definitely, than as you can see. Once the house is rebuilt, it will stretch some 15 feet further along its lot than any home on the block. It'll tower over Lassane's yard, and her sunroom windows will be permanently in the shade. It just feels like someone's invading your turf. It's also going to house more people. What was once a single-family home is becoming a three-unit condo building. This is a pop-back, one of a variety of creative ways that developers are turning single-family homes into multi-unit buildings. Homes across D.C. are growing every which way they can, up, back, and sideways. The logic is simple. As the city's population and housing prices keep going up, developers are getting creative in building units wherever they can. If that means expanding a row house and dividing it into multiple apartments, so be it. But for Lassane, the oversized row house is changing the character of a community she has grown to love in her 50 years here. She worries about parking on the street, 
and she's concerned that the rear exits on the new building will mean its occupants won't wave to the neighbors on their front porches. So they're just going to change change the, the tranquility mm-hmm. and change the neighborhood in essence. She's not the only one with those fears. Um, pop-ups are destroying single-family homes in Lanier Heights. Earlier this month, Residents of the Lanier Heights neighborhood north of Adams Morgan packed into a rec center to discuss an issue that has been simmering for a while, single-family row houses that are being popped up and turned into multi-unit condominiums. Toby Foyer is a musician who has lived with his wife and two children in the neighborhood for the past 20 years and in the same single-family home for the past eight. Like Lassane, the size of the new homes bothers him. They build them from the beginning of the lot to the end of the lot. There's no garden, and then they build it far up. Usually, if you're next door to them, you will not have much light in your garden anymore because they're going to be higher than your um, house, and they're going to cover your garden up. But for Chuck Brodsky, who has lived in the neighborhood since 1997, the debate is just a reflection of how the city has changed. That pop-up is a symptom of some larger challenge, right? Uh, The challenge is where do people go? How do they preserve their qualities of life? Brodsky and other supporters of pop-ups say that expanding and converting single-family homes doesn't push long-time residents out, but rather allows new residents in. It also increases the city's housing stock, which could help push down already high prices. Foyer doesn't buy it, though. He says he isn't against new buildings, but that they should be kept to larger streets and commercial areas. The more condos he has on his street, the fewer families that will be able to live there. You know, how are you going to have a five-year-old running around, you know, where, you know, you, you have one bedroom and four people live in it? A group of his neighbors is pushing to downzone Lanier Heights, a process by which the zoning requirements are changed so that they limit how many people can live in each house. The Office of Planning has similarly proposed a stricter height limit on homes in certain residential areas, which would limit pop-ups, as well as a moratorium on condo conversions in those areas. The changes would apply to Buchanan Street, where Sandra Lassane lives. Like Foyer, she says she isn't against the changes in the city. For her, it's more about how quickly they are happening and whether long-time residents are being consulted. Perhaps if the developer had said, well, how can we make you happier? Or how can we make this transition easier? If we had some input into this before they, they just came and just kind of jolted you awake and said, we're going to do this. Chuck Brodsky, who opposes downzoning Linear Heights, agrees that the issue of how involved residents feel can define whether they accept change or fight it. I think any change is threat. And so the concept is people all of a sudden don't want to be jolted, really in any which way, whether it's with their jobs or their family situations or the places they live, right? It's change is very, very difficult to manage. I'm Martin Ostermule. We always wanted a big two-story house Back when we lived in that little two-room shack We wanted fame and fortune And we lived life the way the rich folks do So all these discussions about the high cost of housing and what to do about it, they're especially pressing for older Washingtonians, especially those on a fixed income. As D.C.'s market booms, landlords are hiking up rents, and the city closed its subsidized housing waitlist indefinitely. For many seniors, the only remaining option is applying for federal housing assistance. But even then, they could wait years. Emily Berman introduces us to several Washingtonians on these waitlists, all of them wondering if they're being priced out of a city they've lived in and loved 
for so long. Stacy Johnson is a social worker at Bread for the City. She leads a weekly housing workshop at the nonprofit's building in Shaw. Today, like most weeks, there are quite a few seniors here. Good morning, everyone. How are you? The best bet for seniors right now, she says, is to apply for a unit in the city's federally subsidized buildings. There are about 100 of these buildings total. A quarter are exclusively for seniors. Rent is capped at one-third of your income, which is a great prospect for someone collecting Social Security and very little else. This information session that we do every week is for new people coming in. We have 20 to 30 people in this room every week. The need far, far, far outweighs the supply. Those basically are this. Benito Diaz is flipping through a list of buildings, currently taking new applications. He's 62. It's a uh, list of properties that I'm eligible for. Diaz circles some of the names, crosses out others. He knows the exact location of each building just from its street address. I like living here. I don't see any reason why I should have to move anywhere else. But the rent he pays now is expensive. It takes up like 99% of my income. He's unemployed and qualifies for food stamps. He's been living off his savings for years. But those savings are gone now, and so uh, I have a real problem. Stacy Johnson says she tries to be realistic with people. Getting on the wait list doesn't guarantee you a spot in subsidized housing. And I say this is going to be a long process, so filling out your applications and submitting them is quick. It's the wait. And I tell people the wait can be anywhere from six months, a year, two years, five years. In the meantime, many applicants are left in poverty. According to the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University, a lack of affordable housing is a significant cause of homelessness among the elderly. One solution is to move somewhere cheaper. But Johnson says moving can create its own problems. Things like Medicaid and food stamps, those are state-specific benefits. So if you have D.C. Medicaid and now you move to Maryland, you've got Maryland Medicaid, you need a new doctor. Earlier this month, the Senior Advisory Coalition gathered for its monthly meeting. It's a group of nonprofit and city leaders working together to create ongoing recommendations for the city. So here we go. Draft objectives. Um... Elena Waldron is at one end of a conference table at Iona Senior Services. She's the director of Leading Age DC, an association for senior-related nonprofits. She says DC seniors are being hit with a double whammy. Funding for new subsidized housing was slashed from the federal budget back in 2012. Plus, many building owners aren't renewing their contracts to provide affordable housing. In the district in particular, there's been a huge loss of affordable housing as the property values have gone up. One solution is to create more vouchers, Waldrum says. The voucher holder pays 30 percent of his or her income for housing, and the federal government owes the landlord the rest, up to the market rate. And that can get expensive. So as those rents go up, then your voucher costs go up. In a booming market like D.C., that's likely not a desirable choice to city officials keeping an eye on the bottom line. She says D.C. needs to build more housing itself. If not... That money will likely be spent down the line anyway, on shelters and emergency medical care. Yes. So these these two are the only sources of income you get? Yes. Yes, okay. Back at Bread for the City, Raymond Murray sits with a volunteer, carefully filling out applications. You can see what's going on. You know, everybody moving in, they're building all these apartment buildings, 
the poor black folks, we can't afford that. You know, half of us don't even uh, have jobs. Murray is 63 years old and has lived in Washington his whole life. Right now, he rents an apartment in Northeast. Pretty soon, he won't be able to afford it. Three quarters of Washington is for the rich, filthy rich or for or middle income or whatever. And all the low and poor people over in this particular corner right here. You can't see that? You know, Ray Charles can see that. While he waits, Murray says, his plan is to get some more income. But he's skeptical he can. I mean, I'm 63 years old. Nobody's going to hire me. I don't have the education that I could have, you know what I'm saying? At my age, you ain't got too much coming. As he packs up his papers to leave, Murray thanks the staff and volunteers. He's applying to live in a building right around the block, so while he's in the neighborhood, he'll go check it out. Maybe he won't get a spot this year, or next year either, but he's hoping it won't be long. I'm Emily Berman. next story is about a part of the population that some might call the pioneers of gentrification. In cities across the globe, artists are often the first ones to move in and turn neighborhoods into the next hot place. But they can also be the first ones to be pushed out. Lauren Landau looks at the role the arts have played in gentrifying parts of Washington, D.C., from H Street to historic Anacostia. We're in the black box, and that's what it is. It's a black box that we dropped into a warehouse space. Adele Roby is the founder of the Anacostia Playhouse, a performing arts venue just off Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue in Southeast. You see they've built a really beautiful rural home with fabulous mossy grass in the North Carolina countryside. Adele and her late husband, Bruce, founded the first Roby-operated playhouse on the other side of the Anacostia River on H Street Northeast back in 2002. At the time, theatergoers on H Street who wanted to grab a bite were directed to a nearby fast food joint. But little by little, more options came to the area. Once those people are out there wandering the streets looking for a hamburger, smart people are going to say, I'm going to make a hamburger for these people. And there it starts. Within a few years, another venue, the Atlas Performing Arts Center, opened. And suddenly, the neighborhood started to take off. Somewhere along the line, though, it took on life of its own and, and grew like topsy and and now, I don't know what H Street is anymore. It's uh, aside from a place where you can't find any place to park. After her husband died unexpectedly in 2009, Adele had to sell the H Street Playhouse. The hunt for a new space eventually led her to Anacostia. She fell in love with the historic neighborhood and the 5,000-square-foot warehouse that would become the Anacostia Playhouse. She says here she received a warm welcome, a sharp contrast to the initial reaction she got on H Street, where angry residents called her an evil white woman. I think I've intentionally blocked some of the things that were said to me because people were frightened that this little tiny theater in a restaurant was going to open and make everybody's property values go off the wall. Well, pretty soon they did later on. And did we start that? Did we spur that? I think a little, because we started to bring bodies to a place that hadn't had bodies since 1968. And those new bodies are starting to come here, too. I caught up with a few of them before a Saturday evening performance. 
Jeff and Carolyn Surface are longtime fans of the Playhouse and have already visited the venue several times in its new location. We're excited about the same kind of evolution in Anacostia that the H Street Playhouse created in, uh, in H Street. We would love to have more restaurants here. We, we try to use the neighborhood to walk around and everything. I think there's a lot happening here. A lot happening. But will longtime residents benefit from the changes? River East Emerging Leaders is a group that aims to empower Wards 7 and 8 by taking stock of the issues affecting the community. Early last year, the organization asked Adele to participate in a discussion about redevelopment and gentrification. One of the comments was, and said semi-in jest, was, well, you know... You can always tell when the white people are coming because the arts come. She says the comments bothered her. There are enormous quantities of talented emerging artists and already emerged artists who live over here east of the river, and they can't be marginalized. I can't say the arts are coming with the white people. The arts are here. Luis Peralta del Valle is one of those artists. Last year, he received the East of the River Distinguished Artist Award. I think Anacostia is really turning into an arts district. Art is always at the forefront of revitalization or gentrification, whatever people want to call it. I think sometimes it's the same thing. He says he doesn't define gentrification in terms of race. You can't put a color on gentrification. Most of my friends here are black young couples that are having kids and they have good jobs and they're doing the arts out for a living. Most of them are not white. Ward 8 resident and blogger Nikki Peel would rather avoid the topic of gentrification altogether. The G word, which I personally don't like to use, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and I think it's a loaded word. She says she'd rather focus on job creation, small business development, and how to use arts, culture, and the creative economy to revitalize neighborhoods east of the river. And, she says in Anacostia, it's been a homegrown effort. I look around the streets here, and the people that are advocating for this neighborhood and who are cleaning the streets and who are calling their council member and who are calling the district to task are people that look like me, okay? And they have been living here for 15, 20, 30 years. She says residents don't want their community to be the next U Street. They just want it to be the next Anacostia. And that's something to look forward to. I'm Lauren Landau. In a minute, reaching across the river, D.C.'s long-awaited 11th Street Bridge Park. The very first question we ask is, is this something that the community wants? And we've heard enthusiasm from both sides of the river. That story is just ahead as our look at gentrification continues on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're calling today's show... The G word. Gentrification is the irresponsible removal of a people based on economics. Part of gentrification is this business of not having a say or feeling that you don't have a say in what your future is. When I first moved into my neighborhood, the Caucasian people were moving out and we were moving in. And now, well, everybody's living in the neighborhood. As you can hear, everyone has an opinion when it comes to gentrification, what it means, what it does, who benefits from it. While this next story is about something the city hopes will benefit residents on both sides of the Anacostia River. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us the latest on the massive civic space planned for the 11th Street Bridge. (laughs) 
If you like boisterous, heartfelt praise music, the 7.30 a.m. Sunday service at Matthews Memorial Baptist Church in Anacostia might just be the cure for any early morning sluggishness. Matthews sits just up Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard from historic Anacostia, and with a congregation of about 2,000 members, it's one of the largest churches in the area. This truly is a family church. Reverend Donna Freeman is the children's pastor at Matthews Memorial. No matter whom you talk to, there is someone here that has a family member that has actually lived in the Barry Farm. Now, they may have moved since then, but their roots are here. But that's the thing. Those roots haven't been strong enough to keep many of Matthew's loyal congregants from moving to the suburbs. Freeman has soaring hopes, though, that the 11th Street Bridge Park and all that it promises could be a tipping point. Different things that people want to build a strong family unit have just declined rapidly. The 11th Street Bridge brings that hope and newness back into the area, along with retail and different things that are going on. So that is tangible hope to everyone. Scott Kratz is the person tasked with making sure that tangible hope becomes tangible success. He's the executive director of the 11th Street Bridge Park Project. Right now, he's standing on the Anacostia waterfront looking at the remains of the old 11th Street Bridge. It's this, Kratz says, that will be the foundation of the Bridge Park, a civic space the size of three football fields. Yeah, what we're looking at now are four different piers that were the old supports for the old 11th Street Bridge that we're planning on reusing. Kratz came to the project as a volunteer. He was merely an interested resident at first, but soon he realized the idea, hatched with then-D.C. planning director Harriet Tregoning, was too important to be a hobby. The more I looked at the potential for this 11th Street Bridge Park, the more I saw, I can't think of another project within that sort of single intervention that can be an anchor for economic development for both sides, can re-engage people with the river itself, can connect to communities that have been divided for so long and can be a place, a safe place for active recreation. But Kratz also knew that few of those goals could be accomplished without residents and community leaders on both sides of the river buying into the plan. The very first question we ask is, is this something that the community wants? Because if not, this was probably not a good use of anybody's time or um, effort. And we've heard enthusiasm from both sides of the river. But enthusiasm can evaporate quickly without trust. And so, three years ago, Kratz began the hard work of building that trust. He created a design oversight committee that included residents and leaders from both sides of the river, holding more than 300 community meetings over the past three years. Community activist David Smith is a part of the committee and grew up east of the river himself in Deanwood. He says gentrification has been the hottest topic at the meetings from the beginning. The talk around gentrification is the number one talk. And what what I think everyone is starting to realize that, first of all, there are a lot of promises that have been made in the past that are never kept. Kratz concurs. But that G word, he says the real concern is something much easier to understand. Ultimately, that gentrification term is such a loaded term. What we're really concerned about is displacement. How do we make sure that this 11th Street Bridge Park can be a rising tide that lifts boats on both sides of the river? A frequent point of comparison for the 11th Street Bridge Park concept is New York City's High Line, a linear park built in 2009 on a defunct portion of elevated freight rail track in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood. They were the first to 
transform aging infrastructure into a new civic space. It's a proof of concept. People can see that that works. But the High Line also provided a cautionary tale about gentrification. Property values around it skyrocketed, and the neighborhood changed so rapidly that working-class residents were priced out and long-standing businesses were hit hard by the changing demographics. David Smith says avoiding the high-line scenario will take continued effort and vigilance. Would a tidal wave or opportunity be a tsunami to the people in the community and wipe them out? Um, That is the concern. And I pray that this interview, I don't hear it in 10 years and realize, wow, I knew that it could happen. Scott Kratz says his design oversight committee has come up with ways to make sure the bridge park isn't merely an engine for displacement. He says the district should consider tax breaks for local artists and businesses and setting aside land near the bridge for affordable housing. He hopes to gather those ideas into a formalized plan that his committee will then present to elected leaders. It'd be really easy to just say, we don't own any land on either side of the bridge park. We're a nonprofit, right? And say, this isn't our problem. But ultimately, I think that would be irresponsible. If one of the driving goals is to connect two otherwise divided communities, by ignoring that, we wouldn't be true to our mission. If the 11th Street Bridge Park can do what it promises, beautify the river, empower local residents to build and own businesses where they live, it could help lay to rest the idea that neighborhood revitalization always brings displacement. It's a tall order, but Smith, Kratz, and the many residents eager to see the bridge park completed clearly think these are problems that the nation's capital, one of the most educated and wealthy cities in the world, should be able to solve. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Four designs for the 11th Street Bridge Park are in. You can see them on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll stay east of the Anacostia now as we visit what a recent study calls one of D.C.'s top transitioning neighborhoods. Researchers from Bowie State University, George Washington University, and the D.C. Office of the Chief Financial Officer made a list of the neighborhoods that have seen the biggest increase in residents' incomes and median property values since 2001. Their final roster included 18 places, including Berry Farms, Columbia Heights, Trinidad, and a place near and dear to Marion Cole's heart since she moved there in 1965. This house was here, and they had kerosene. Marshall Heights. These are all new houses been built since I came. This was all woods. <laughs> and, and no sidewalks, no streets? No sidewalks, no streets. Uh-huh, uh-huh. We're driving through the hilly Ward 7 neighborhood, bordered by East Capitol Street on the north, Southern Avenue on the east, and Benning Road on the west. And as Cole recalls, they didn't even have working sewers or water mains here until Eleanor Roosevelt made it her cause in the 1950s. Marshall Heights used to be called Shantytown. That's just how bad it was. And as for the houses that replaced all those woods Marion Cole talks about? How much did you buy your house for? $7,000. And uh, this house, I don't believe it. But this house is going for 5000 500000 Uh-huh. Indeed, these days, the asking price of most homes here is in the hundreds of thousands. But even though the neighborhood's come a long way, lifelong resident Loretta Tate says it wasn't always a smooth ride. It's a community that has been 
up and down, up and down. Tate was 26 when she founded the Marshall Heights Community Development Organization. It was 1979, and though more infrastructure had arrived by then, so had more poverty, as African Americans from overcrowded tenements and slums in other parts of the city took refuge here. When it was starting to go down, and they started to build up apartments and the federal housing projects and all that, I had a vision that we could improve living standards here, the quality of life. So the Marshall Heights Community Development Organization secured grants to provide housing counseling services, renovate and build homes. It even assisted residents with employment and health care. But then, in the mid-1980s... The crack came. And that citywide epidemic hit Marshall Heights hard. Crack babies and all of that. We had a school here, uh, Fletcher Johnson, and uh, one year... I think it was 100% of the little boys in the kindergarten failed. Not one of them passed. Not one. Residents fled the area. Drug markets flooded it. The long-neglected 230-unit public housing project Eastgate became ground zero for crime. In the first two months of 1989, 14 people were shot there and four died in the violence. The Marshall Heights Community Development Organization started a 10-year fighting back initiative to tackle the drug problem. And in 2003, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development granted $20 million to redevelop Eastgate. I can remember one night I got to go up on the bulldozer with the mayor and we got to tear down one of these buildings. That was like one of the high points of my life. (laughs) Carrie Thornhill is former deputy director of the Marshall Heights Community Development Organization. When Eastgate went down, it made way for 61 rented public housing units, 150 home ownership units, and 100 off-site units for seniors. But it also made way for hope and wealth. This area transformed. That's the best way to describe it. Between 2000 and 2006, the median sales price of homes in Marshall Heights more than doubled as the housing boom spurred investment in the community. But remember how Loretta Tate mentioned those ups and downs? Well, Marshall Heights saw plenty of the latter after the housing bust. From 2007 to 2009, home sales plummeted and foreclosures skyrocketed, as did vacancies. That circle was in rough shape. I mean, it was all boarded up. It was pretty much vacant. I think they had like three people living here. Also in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Michael Bodakin and Kara Williams-Keefe are with the National Housing Trust. We're standing outside Bass Circle Apartments, a five-building, 119-unit property that was recently redeveloped as partial low-income housing. Around the corner, the National Housing Trust did something similar with the 61-unit affordable housing co-op, Copeland Manor. What kind of shape was it in? It was a slump. I mean, it was not something place you'd want to live. But with big ventures like these, along with new construction near the Benning Road Metro and increasing interest in upcoming projects like the nearby Skyland Town Center, Carol Williams-Keefe says Marshall Heights is on another upswing. It's one of the few remaining places um, where there are big parcels of land that are still open for development. So you've got the space, um, and it's just using it responsibly and planning responsibly to account for all the residents that continue to live here and the residents that will be coming in. And longtime resident Marian Cole says she's been noticing those newcomers. From her living room window, she points outside. On this street, we have picked up two people who work on the hill. The white lady works for the Senate, Senate staff. And then, then this has been a new neighbor that just moved in. And, uh, yeah, he was almost 200000 He moved next door to a $7,000 house, and he's paying almost 200000 <laughs> Cole still calls her home a $7,000 house, but Loretta Tate says nowadays her own house would go for upwards of 235000 So real estate prices are up, diversity's coming in, 
But if you ask Tate if Marshall Heights is gentrifying, she'll ask you not to use that word. Yeah, the homes are 250000 But gentrification does have a lot of negativity to it. It needs to be out of the English language. I want to deal with what community does and what it's about and how we can help to build it. And what's more, she says, build it together. Whatever the race, whatever the income, through the ups and the downs. We have photos of Marshall Heights and a link to that study of D.C.'s transitioning neighborhoods on our website, metroconnection.org. So while we're on the subject of Ward 7, that part of town will soon be the new home of an institution that, for decades, enjoyed a relatively quiet existence on the other side of the river, on a fairly undeveloped stretch of New York Avenue northwest. But as that neighborhood became more desirable, D.C. Eagle, a gay biker bar, was forced out. Lauren Ober explores how the Eagle went from being a victim of gentrification to a possible gentrifier itself. The four-story building at 639 New York Avenue Northwest doesn't look like much. Its insides have been gutted and piles of rubble sit just outside where the doors once were. A tall chain-link fence surrounds the structure. It didn't always look like this. For nearly 30 years, the building was home to the D.C. Eagle, a gay biker bar. The Eagle was an institution in D.C.'s gay community. It got its start just after the 1969 Stonewall riots and managed to survive. Until this year. Soon, offices will stand where gay men in leather and Levi's once socialized. The entire block was being redeveloped by Douglas Development. Uh, Everyone from Midas, Amerikash, all the bars, everything was being evicted. Ted Clements is one of the owners of the Eagle. Simply put, his bar was a victim of the success of the nearby Washington Convention Center. The parcel that the bar occupied was a hot property and developers wanted it. So in January, the Eagle had to close. But Clements and his business partner, Peter Lloyd, were determined to resurrect it. We want to try to maintain the D.C. Eagle and its tradition. After looking at nearly 100 locations, they found a new home for the bar in a most unlikely spot, east of the Anacostia River. Tucked behind a dental clinic, a subway sandwich shop, and a beauty supply store is 3701 Benning Road Northeast. It's a 20,000-square-foot industrial space that began its life as a slaughterhouse. Now it's the new roost for the D.C. Eagle. We wound up looking over here and found this one, and it had everything our customers really wanted. They wanted an outdoor area, some parking, metro accessible, and this has all of that. Plus, it gave us a lot of room to expand and stay relevant for the next generation. One thing you need to know about the Eagles' new neighborhood is that it is largely African-American. The households are primarily low to moderate income, and there hasn't been much in the way of development there. What businesses the neighborhood does have are mostly stop-and-go shopping, says Ward 7 Council Member Yvette Alexander. I would say it's been really kind of challenged area for many years. But I'm pleased to say that we are redeveloping that area, bringing it back to life. That's not just political wishful thinking. Development is starting to happen in the neighborhood. There's the Park 7, a new 400-unit apartment building on Minnesota Avenue. And the redevelopment of the East River Park Shopping Center is on the horizon. Plus, there's the Eagle, which is slated to open in November. So that's going to bring development. It's going to bring activity. It's going to bring life to that corner. So I'm pleased with it. But let's get one thing straight. I'm not personally into leather and chains myself, but there may be some who are. But I think it's excellent. 
The DC Eagle in its East of the River iteration won't just be a leather bar. The building will also house a performance space, a cigar bar, and a 50-seat restaurant appropriately named The Phoenix. The owners want the establishment to be a place for all types of people, including locals. There's historical precedent for the move to a place like Ward 7, says Amin Gaziani. He's a sociology professor at the University of British Columbia and the author of the book There Goes the Gayborhood. LGBT individuals, along with other subgroups such as artists and students, are often responsible for initiating processes of urban revitalization. But Theo Green, a doctoral candidate at Northwestern University who has studied D.C.'s gay neighborhoods, says planting a gay bar in a working-class black area is not without its challenges. You often see a lot of these institutions coming in, and they may have a lot of support from the political machine that that operates there. But they're often, particularly in these African-American neighborhoods, you often find the strongest objection from those institutions who have been there since the 1968 riots, who have probably been the sole institutions there since 1968 riots and had a lot of freedom that is now being lost as development comes in, as new groups come in that may not share a a history or a sense of priority with African-American culture or history. Councilmember Alexander says she hopes the Eagle will help spur future development in that area. And bar co-owner Peter Lloyd is adamant that his operation will be a good neighbor. They're not gentrifiers, he says, just folks trying to grow a business that can ultimately become part of a community. I'm Lauren Ober. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Emily Berman, Lauren Ober, Jacob Fenston, Lauren Landau, and Martin Ostermule. We'd love to hear your thoughts on gentrification and D.C.'s changing neighborhoods. Share your feedback on this week's show or offer ideas for follow-up stories by sending us an email. Our address is metro at wamu.org. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connections managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click This Week on Metro Connection or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on Stitcher, iTunes, and the NPR News app. We hope you can tune in next week when we'll devote an hour to legacies, from a civil rights leader in Virginia who blazed a lasting trail to a local music tradition that predates American jazz, blues, and gospel. We sing with our lips and clap with our hands, stomp with our feet, and when the spirit get on us, we shout. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. Thank you.